In a little less than three weeks, Elena and I are going to be celebrating our 10-year wedding anniversary. Yeah, September 14th, thank you. Yeah, we'll be celebrating. It's going to, we're, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward. We're going to get away for a little bit, uh, which you just can never do with kids. And when she's in nursing school, so it'll be a nice little break. Um, but yeah, 10 years. We got past the hard part, and I'm looking really forward to getting into the really hard part. So that's a... Uh, now, what I've found, though, is being married is that I've gotten girlier with time. Anybody else find that? To be true, you got married? Like, when I first got married, I swear I was, I was manlier than this. I, I think I was. Um, because I, my memories seem to serve me that way. I remember, particularly, there was this camping trip that our church went on years ago when we were newlyweds. I think it was before Victoria. Elena was working. She couldn't go, so I went by myself. And if you're wondering, I wonder how the church, fam- or the church family camping trip went. We've never done it again, so that should tell you how well it went. Um, and so I was packing my bag, and I'm at camping. I know what I'm doing. A tent, sleeping bag, thin little easy-to-pack mattress. I got hot dogs, hot dog buns. I threw some mustard in. I'm like, that's it. Like, I'm totally fine. And she was like, you can't. Oh, hon, you can't do that. That's not going to be very comfortable. I'm like, it's, this is camping. You rough it. I'm, I'm ready for this. You don't understand. I... When I was a kid, I camped sleeping in the back of my dad's truck under the canopy with the windows vented for my brother's gas. I am set. I'm going to have my own tent. This is the Ritz. But she was like, no, no, no. So she goes to Fred Meyer. She bought a new cooler because she thought mine was too beat up. And she packed all these, like, nice snack foods in there. She bought a thick air mattress. I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like, I hope she kept the receipt. Um, I go on the trip. I unpack it. And immediately I was like, this mattress, though. And I'm opening up the cooler, I'm like, these snacks are so delectable. And I didn't realize that was the beginning of the softening. That was the beginning of of things to come. I'm this close now to doing the cucumber over the eyes, bathrobe, face mask, spa day. That close. You suggest it to me in the right mood, and I'd be like, I mean, I'll do it. I've got the cucumbers, and I know where Elena keeps the mask, so let's go for it. And... uh, this week, in fact, we were watching, every night, because it's the only break we get, we watch a show together. Sometimes it's The Office. And this week, it was Julie and Julia, the chick flick. Um, and I know what you're thinking. Elena suggested and I humored her. She didn't. I suggested it. And this wasn't one of those things where I was like, Elena, you've had a long week. Let's watch Julie and Julia. I was like, I've had a long week. Let's watch Julie and Julia. Um, and if you haven't seen it, it's about Julia Child and... Um, uh, Julie Powell, who writes about Julia Child, tells both their stories simultaneously. So there's a lot of stuff about Julia Child's formation. And one, there's one scene that actually stuck out to me this time, and it's when she's in Le Cordon Bleu, the French cooking school, and she's in Paris, and she's learning to cook. In the, I don't know how to call him, maitre d', the person in charge, she hates Julia Child in the movie. I'm guessing it's real. Because uh, she's American, and Julia Child was like a 1,000 feet tall, so that didn't work in her favor either. And... Um, there's a scene where they're making eggs, and it's this moment where the woman comes in, and Julia Child is really great in front of her, and she's all fronted and leaves. But they're making uh, omelets, and she just, they, they, she butters it just right, flips it just right, and it was actually a really well-thought-out scene I didn't think of until I watched it this week, because eggs are, in fact, the benchmark for chefs. They make the new chefs master eggs, and the reason why is that they're very simple, and everything you need to be a great chef is in the well Uh, the well-done preparation of an egg. They need to be fresh. You need to nail the timing. You need to nail the temperature. You need to nail the method. And we can all make eggs. We're familiar with them. But just like all chefs can do, they can make something everyone's familiar with and elevate it to being something special. So if a chef nails the omelet, 
they are set to be a chef. If you make a perfect omelet, you can make a perfect steak. You can make a perfect chicken breast. You can make perfect braised vegetables. Whatever you're going to do, that is the first thing that has to be mastered. So she masters the basics, and it's the point of the, of the film. But it's, I was, I've been thinking about that, of, of just the importance of the egg, of getting the egg down. And we, we're reading, we've been on this series of this theme in Scripture of love your neighbor in the complexity of it and the simplicity of it, that within that command, love your neighbor, is um, half of everything the Bible has to say. Jesus said it's contained in two things, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything from don't steal, don't commit adultery, um, don't gossip, don't, don't try to tear other people down, build others up, is all about loving your neighbor as yourself. It all fits within that. And yet there's this one thing that I find is this, this common crucible. It's, it's the perfect egg of loving your neighbor. It comes up again and again. Every time you find this command repeated or alluded to, the chances of finding foreigners mentioned in it is astronomical in Scripture. In fact, the most famous reference to love your neighbor as yourself is a parable Jesus tells regarding a foreigner and his relationship to Israel. There's the Israelite, he's beaten, he's left on the side of the road, he's going to die soon, and all of the pious Israelites pass over him and they won't help him. And then a Samaritan, who was not just a foreigner, but the most hated of foreigners, stops and helps him and binds his wounds up, and Jesus says, this is the man that was the neighbor to him, the good Samaritan. It includes this theme of foreigners and ethnicity. So why are foreigners, refugees, outsiders, why are they such a big deal? Why is it when this love others as yourself, the chance of finding foreigners in that mix is so big? Why is it that loving a foreigner is mastering the egg of loving your neighbor? I want to read the very first reference. So as we said, this command in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, this comes from Deuteronomy. It comes from the Shema. And then completely different book in the book of Leviticus is where we find the other reference Jesus is talking to. Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. You need to treat non-Israelites the same as you would treat an Israelite. Love them as yourself. There's the reference. It's in the New Testament. It's in uh, Jewish law. It's so critical. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the last few lines of text of a portion of Leviticus that is all about community holiness. This whole past, this chapter opens up with uh, the Lord saying, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy, because God's nature is reflected in the group that is holy. If you are supposed to be Yahweh's people, you need, if you behave like Yahweh, people will have Yahweh revealed to them. God's nature is reflected in them. Holiness is to be like God, different from those around them. And to, be, to feel this, this, this desire to be like the Lord and the way he sees the world is transformative, and it still surprises people. I watched the documentary about Mr. Rogers, and he said what inspired his show was people getting pies in the face. And I thought, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And what he was saying is he was watching children's programming, and it was pies in the face, and it was humiliation. And he thought, this is no way to treat humanity. This is no way to build people up. He wanted to create a show 
remember he was a Christian. He, in fact, was a pastor, if you didn't know. He felt this burden to reflect the way God felt about people and children, that the image of God, the Imago Dei, is on them. And so he wanted to have something that affirmed and built people up. There's another figure, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a minister in Germany in the time of the Nazi uprising, and he refused to uh, speak favorably of the Nazis, spoke against them. He did his work to protect people in the area, and for him, holiness was God's mercy and his protection. And even though it cost Bonhoeffer his life, his legacy goes on because when people see Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they see God's mercy, they see his compassion, they see holiness in an unholy time. And so there's this holiness that we can reveal of being like God that reveals to the world that this community belongs to someone different, and this is what he's like. So the idea of Leviticus 19 is if you kind of, uh, if you fail these commandments, you defile the nation in my name, and vice versa. If you live by these commandments, you will reveal me to the world around you. In this simple line of text, love the foreigner as if they were an Israelite completely transforms the law. Because if it weren't for that line, Israelites would have a very good reason to believe that the provisions, the protections, and the rights of the law of Moses pertained only to Israelites, and that did not pertain to foreigners. I think of, I recently read about the first and second Burberry Wars, if you ever read about these, the first war the U.S. ever got involved in after the Revolutionary War. And they got involved because the Berber coast had all these pirates and the Islamic caliphates that were there said, you can have safe harbor here, but you cannot attack Muslims. You must attack only infidels. They're not under the protection of, uh, of um, the Quran in their interpretation of it in the Berber coast. And so this went directly against particularly American values. America became this enlightenment nation where the law applies to everybody. It's actually something unique about the United States. You don't have to be an American citizen to have the right of free speech. If you come here and you're not an American, and this was true back then, um, you could have the right of free speech without being an American. You cannot be arrested for what you say. And so there, it went against this belief and it broke out into a huge war between the two nations. Um, and this could have been easily the assumption of an Israelite, that the protections, the things like don't steal from them, treat them well, um, be, show great hospitality, always honor other people, they could have very easily believed, this is for Israelites, and if you're not part of the covenant, if you're not even a proselyte, you don't get this. But this transforms it completely, because now the law of Moses is this deep belief system for how humanity should be treated. Treat the Canaanite, treat the Moabite, treat the Philistine, treat the Palestinian as if they are an Israelite. This is deeply transforming to um, their code, their law, and how they would interpret it. So the lawyer asked Jesus, and remember the, the whole context of that love your neighbor as yourself is referring to a foreigner. It wasn't even referring to an Israelite. Yes, that includes everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the foreigner as yourself. When he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the parable of the good Samaritan, a forerunner, or excuse me, a foreigner. Jesus answered as a master of the law, going right back to the original context, becoming someone who understands and can repeat scripture, understands the heart of it, the meaning of it, and reflects it at a deeper level that the foreigner was the, was the neighbor to the wounded Israelite. That righteousness follows those who honor the foreigner and those who are unlike them. There's this deep meaning 
in that, in that story. The fact that the hero is actually not an Israelite. It's really meaningful that Jesus is trying to say to them, just because you're Jewish doesn't make you a hero, the hero in the story. I think it's a lesson for us as well that just because we are Christians doesn't mean we're always the good guy. The good guy is one that obeys the commands of God and cares for their neighbor like themselves, the one who is unlike them. Another reference to this commandment comes later on in Zechariah. Zechariah, the Lord prophesies to him, this is what the Lord Almighty said. So this is the Lord speaking through Zechariah. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Another reiteration of loving others as ourselves, of extending and being people who treat others well, and another reference to foreigners. And this time it's fleshed out a little more. It gives us a bit of a projection of what this looks like fulfilled. He says, uh, administer true justice. And this, this word for true justice is the best interpretation of a word that needs to be discussed, a Hebrew word called uh, mishpat. It's fun to say mishpat, I think is how I wrote it down to be pronounced, and I think that's correct. Uh, Buchi, I don't know if you know that word in Hebrew, but mishpat means justice. But it means more than justice. It's not the abstract, impersonal, justice is blind system that we think, or a way that we can think of justice. It doesn't belong just in a courtroom. Mishpat refers to the rights and duties each party has in an interaction or each person has with each other. Both rights and duties. What it means is that our lives are either under mishpat, under justice, or it's, it's under injustice. We are either ourselves giving people justice or giving them injustice every day. Each person offers a different kind of mishpat, this blessing, this, this burden, this responsibility on the context and who they are and who they're interacting with. So a person who is ridiculed and humiliated in front of everybody, their mishpat is their right to be vindicated. That's their right, that is, their, that is the mishpat for them, is that it can be also what a person has as a right under a justice system or under a just interaction. And the one who ridiculed them, their mishpat, is to vindicate that person, to apologize publicly. If they did the damage publicly, they must do the healing publicly. And if you read the Law of Moses, there's so much about to the degree that you do the damage, you must yourself work to undo the damage, and that's this interaction of mishpat, what a person is... Uh, has a, a right to what a person has a duty to. Across your life, there are areas where you have power. Power to do things other people can't do. Power to exercise a level of justice in someone's life. You know, it's said, with great power comes great responsibility. But if we could blend two languages today, we could say, with great power comes great mishpat responsibility to set right what we could actually control. I was, uh, uh, I was in Sun River this week, and I was, uh, me and Camille, we went to get coffee and a croissant. It was a fun dad-daughter time, and as we're walking back, these two guys just got in a fight at a roundabout. Roundabouts make fights. That's what we don't have them over here. <laughs> like, I, people don't know how to use them. Uh, and so they get in this fight. They pull their cars over. They're yelling at each other, and I've got Camille, and I'm like, we're going to go the other way, and it looked like they're about to fist fight. I look at one guy, he's filming with his phone. And I got to say, as I saw him filming with his phone, I thought, that's worse than that. 
Like, like, they're, like, you can't just sit there and film someone fighting. Like, people aren't clowns to perform for you. So, so I'm sitting there watching this. This other guy gets up, runs over, intervenes between the two of them, and breaks up the fight. And it was just this, I don't know, a, a, a sudden study of the, the tale of two men. One who sits there and gawks and watches, and the other one that took the responsibility and realized, I have a cool head. I have a responsibility. I have, maybe he doesn't know Hebrew at all, but he had a mishpat, and he acted on it, and he brought to that moment some justice. The sense of mishpat should really change our definition of justice, that justice it isn't a thing to live for that we would see in a courtroom or even on a legislative day. It's something that happens every single day. That in the Hebrew idea of thinking about it, giving water to the thirsty, clothing to the poor, giving kindness to the downtrodden is a unique anointing of mishpat on each person who can do so. It's not always the same. It's contextual. There's this interesting thing. Wealthy landowners in the law are required to do something weird in the law of Moses. They're told to be just kind of suck at harvesting on purpose. They're told, don't be too thorough. When you're harvesting your wheat, let some fall. Don't, don't rush. Be a little bit messy so that the poor can come behind you and glean. And they can come and they, the people who don't have fields can come and take what fell out of, the, out of your uh, bags and what fell from your harvesters and they can glean up this food. And that command is only given to landowners. It's not given to everybody else. It's not given to people who have other jobs and pr- pr- do a bad job on purpose so someone can pick up your wages you leave behind. It's a unique responsibility, a unique social responsibility on that person to do what they do in their power and their resources to care in a unique way. Every one of us in this room then would have a different sense of, of place. A manager at work is going to have a very different place of justice and mishpat than a person who's just their general associate. Every one of us in here has a different place, and where we are is different. I have a different role at home than I do at work, and I have a different role when I'm in the store. Where we are every day, though, there is an anointing, there is a responsibility, and there is a right. Gifts of boldness and the resources God gives you, the courage and perspective you have to offer, these are all anointing points for us to be people of justice in this world. And this command... It isn't given to judges. It's not given to administrators. It's not even given to to people in charge of families in the time of Zechariah. It was given to specifically the nation, everybody else. All of you, administrate justice was to the nation, requiring that every inhabitant in Judah promote social harmony, respect, and sound judgment throughout society. And they would do so with a motivation for compassionate healing, which comes to that word, administrate true justice. And the second thing he tells them, it gives them two commands, show mercy. In Hebrew, it's two words. Um, administrate, his, uh, just, oh, I was just saying it too. Mishpat and show chesed. Hased is, is a notoriously difficult word to translate into any other language. It's the most proprietary Hebrew word you can find, and I'm going to do my best. But it is, it is, it's a multifaceted, complicated word that um, is often ascribed to the love of God, how he acts. How it's, a, it's a love that motivates one to do. It's a, mot- it's a love that motivates someone to completely show attention. You don't forget, you know, when your kid goes to school for the first time ever, it's not like, oh, yeah, I forgot I've got a kid, and they're in school today. Like, you're thinking about them. 
you're thinking about them constantly, like, oh, geez, it's lunchtime. I really hope they're eating okay. I hope they're making friends today. That would be a kind of hesed. You love your kid to that level that it, it can kind of consumes you a bit. Hesed would have been, even, even the guy that in my story about in Sun River that gets up and leaves, what motivated him to get up from a seated position, stand up on his feet, and quickly walk over and break up the fight was a hesed. It was a compassion for the group, for the community, to stop this fight from happening in front of all of these kids that motivated him to do something. One of the best pictures of hesed you can find is Jesus coming and dying on the cross. A compassion that drove him to act. It was an act of loving kindness and mercy. The way that, the way that you forgive your kid over and over again, that is his said. The way Christ forgives, goes on the cross, dies. In fact, a lot of people think that the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, they think that that was uh, Paul's attempt to translate hesed to Greek trying to come up with these multiple words to give you an idea that when the Lord and the Holy Spirit's in you, it produces hesed, a love that acts, a love that changes. For God to feel hesed is for God to be God, but for humans to feel hesed is a transforming thing. Hesed kind of love makes men better men. I was listening to a stand-up comedian, Bill Burr. I don't know if you guys ever listened to Bill Burr. He's famously angry. And so he was, uh, he's, this has been his whole career. So he just gets on the stage and he rants and he's very funny. So he can do it in a funny way. But you can tell, like, he's not acting. That dude is actually mad right now. And he's just this explosive anger. And he, this really weird story came out about him. And I saw his bit on it. And it's this shift in him. He's had a kid recently, and he was telling this story. I forgot what he was even mad about, but he's mad in the kitchen. Something dropped on his foot, I think, and he's just yelling, swearing, and cussing. He's flipping out, and his two-year-old daughter comes running in going, Dada, Dada, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dada. And she comes running in, and it just completely wrecks Bill Burr. And he had this moment where he just thought, She's coming in thinking that he's mad and that she's going to say she's sorry and how abusive that could be. He grew up with an angry father, so he has this moment where his heart breaks, and he hugs his daughter and says, no, it's not you. It's never you. And he, he goes on. This is his stand-up bit. He's talking about therapy he's going through, the things he challenges, and that every time he's about to lose his temper, he remembers that, da, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That is his said. It's the sense of compassion for that girl that's driving and changing, making him act, making him better. It pursues him. It's always on his mind. It's a forgiving love, a gracious love, a graceful love. And I have to say, it's very easy to hesed your child. It's very easy to plan for them, to work for them, to serve them, to be thinking about them constantly, constantly ready to give, forgive them over and over again. It is harder to hesed an outsider, to lovingly forgive and be there for an outsider. Yet this is what God prophesies through, Ze- through Zechariah. This is what I want the nation to do, to truly love everyone down to the foreigner, down to those that can't defend themselves. As the old adage says, a true measure for society is the way it treats those who cannot protect themselves. And this is what was to mark the nation. I think about these passages, I think foreigners are foreign. We do not understand them. And they can be difficult. I think God anoints us in many ways to go through certain walks of life that we could identify with somebody else. Nobody can minister to a drug addict like someone the Lord is drug out of drug addiction. And so God connects with us in a unique and powerful way through those things. But uh, 
on the flip side of that, it can be a barrier to really, really love someone completely different than you, who isn't, who is unknown. I remember uh, one of uh, the alumni of the youth group put together a, a, a social network movement called the Stand Up Movement, and it was about uh, particularly race, race relations, and there was a meeting for it in, in Sandy, and so I thought, I'm going to go to that. I want to go support Tracy. So we go to the thing, and, and you know, you grow up, and you get to this point, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm getting past it now, where you're kind of like, I pretty much know everything, you know? Like, like I, I'm, I'm not myself a black person, but I think I would know generally what it would be like to be black in Oregon. I've lived here my whole life, and I've, I've been here. There's the word, and you know the word I'm talking about, that you never say to a black person. It's extremely offensive. I've never heard anyone say it derogatorily to a black person here. I've heard it once in my life when I was in the South, and I was like, that's the South. This is Oregon. It must be really easy here. But these people were getting up and telling their stories of living here in Sandy, Estacada, Welch's, Damascus, like the, this region they all came from all over to come speak. And as they recanted their stories of being called that word in the ways that they were treated at school, at, at, at convenience stores, and no one's looking, I realized that's the stupidest assumption I ever made that I thought I would understand that because I don't live that life. I mean, especially racism is a thing that we frown upon as a society. So if someone's going to say something, they're going to make sure they get away with it, that people like me aren't listening in. And it was just this moment where I realized, what a dumb assumption. I've thought some dumb things. That is uh, first ballot Hall of Fame right there. That's going to be one that goes down with me. It's, it would be like me saying, I think I could comment. I think I pretty much know what chauvinism looks like nowadays, despite the fact that I'm not a woman. I'm not the one being accosted walking down the street. I'm not the one at work being treated differently simply because I am a woman. I probably should ask people what that's like. And I had this moment where I realized that the things that I assume, even though these aren't foreigners, they grew up with me, their life is foreign to me. Their experience is different than mine. How much assumption can get in the way? But if we suspend that protection and we really listen and we find that we get to know uh, more that we find that we don't know the outsider, the foreigner at all, we can listen more and find ways to love them. If the truth of what you find out about people that are unlike you doesn't make you uncomfortable, you might not be exploring it enough. I listened to something in a podcast a couple weeks ago that made me uncomfortable. You see, in, in China, they took over Tibet, and they, they, they own Tibet, and, and Buddhism is the biggest religion in China. So there's these... Um, Chinese uh, gulags, and they would take monks that would refuse to say that uh, Buddhism is a matter of, of Chinese faith and say that it's Tibetan, and they've imprisoned him. And this one guy they imprisoned for 20 years, 20 years tortured, 20 years in a Chinese gulag. And when he was interviewed and they asked him, what was your darkest moment? And he said, the darkest moment is when I was under such pain, I began to lose my compassion for my Chinese guards. And I thought, that's, that's unbelievable. That is Jesus stuff. I don't know what, I, what to make of that. It made me uncomfortable. And I had this, this deep realization that just because someone has yet to give their life to Jesus doesn't mean the light of God is fully extinguished within them. Loving outsiders as ourselves means that in the same way that we want the best of us known and the worst of us forgiven, that we would get to learn and love the best of the outsider and forgive the rest. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not a universalist. Jesus is the only way. 
the only way, that, shall, that, that Buddhist monkey is the only way for him. But I fear that sometimes in our outreach to unbelievers, we too quickly say, without God, they're a train wreck, and they're monsters, and there's something, there's something just perilously evil within them. Loving these outsiders means recognizing that there is still on the most foreign outsiders to Christian faith, the Imago Dei is still on them, the image of God waiting to be redeemed. Still parts that shine through, that still break through the surface, waiting to come alive in Christ. So we love the best of them, of the weird cultures and things that we don't understand, and we advocate for well-being and forgive the rest, because that's what we would want. We dream of a world where we could be treated the same way. When we make that a reality in our midst, Christ is revealed. I'm going to tell you, this is a hard commandment. This is a tough one. Love your neighbor as yourself, including specifically, always seems to be tagging along foreigner, 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 the one not like you, the one who doesn't think like you, that doesn't worship like you, that doesn't look like you, that even themselves has moments where like, there are big things they need to repent from. You need to love them as you would want yourself to be loved. It's not easy. But in the first mention that we get in all of Scripture, there is a little tip, a little point of God on how to handle this. He says, going back to Leviticus, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. God asks us, if you want to live out this command, it is hard. You need to exercise empathy. To treat a foreigner with compassion because you were once a foreigner. To treat the outsider in Jerusalem with compassion because you were once an outsider in Thebes. To treat people that are unlike you because you know what that feels like. To treat the LGBTQ individual with compassion because you too know what it's like to be broken and confused. To treat the Muslim with compassion because you know what it's like to do something with all your heart and still be wrong. And to treat a criminal with compassion because you too know what it's like to be so desperate. You did what you knew was wrong because you simply didn't believe there was another way. The deep level of compassion for people that could deserve judgment, that could deserve hard things, just as we did just as the compassion we received. Because God is holy, we're supposed to be holy like him. Because he's compassionate, we're meant to be compassionate like him. He didn't ban, ban us from finding the lovable things in those yet waiting to be redeemed. In fact, he ordered us to find lovable things in those not yet redeemed. When we love the outsider, we administer mishpat. We declare God's glory. So we have to get it right. If we're going to reflect God, if what a Christian does with their life reflects God, then we have to love like God does. Go to places to, to love foreigners the way God did. Very, very few of us in this room have significant Jewish heritage. We are people that were on the outside, descendants of, of Gentiles that, that the gospel of Christ came out and found. You know what it's like to be in pain. You know what it's like to be rejected. You know what it's like to be lost and to not know a way forward. What would you want? Think of the people that get under your skin. Can you identify with where they are? Appreciate the fact that they really are lost. 
It is hard to find the way forward. If they knew it, they would do it by now. Have you ever felt like that? And can you let the, the empathy guided by the Holy Spirit guide you to be to that person who you wish someone would be to you? This is the hesed that we are meant to feel for foreigners, for those on the outside that aren't like us. I want to pray for us. Lord, today I ask that through your Holy Spirit speaking to us, even using the pain of the past and the way that you pointed your own people who are just out of slavery to not forget slavery, but to recall those hard days, to remember it, and to let that motivate them to treat others well. God, I pray that you could help us make the best of the past wounds, that we wouldn't have experienced them in vain. But even now, by our compassion, the anointing of God reaches into the past and redeems that pain because it's turned into empathy. Empathy that expands the gospel, that opens up minds, that changes this world. God, I pray that we could bring people to the only one that brings hope, that in all the ways your light and hope breaks through the broken and comes through those who aren't ready yet. Lord, would you help us under your Holy Spirit, bring a symphonic connection that all that light leads home to the Father. And there's only one way to the Father, and it's through his Son. God, I pray that our church would be an incredible light to this community we would reveal you brightly and give us a gift to connect with people that are naturally difficult to connect with. Thank you, Lord, for the healing you did in our lives. Help us to partner with you in the healing you do in others. In your name we pray. Amen.